Hello, beautiful. Thank you for tuning in to the Colorism Healing Podcast, where our goal is to learn, transform, and resist. What you're about to listen to is the audio version of my weekly live streams on Instagram and Facebook, which you are welcome to join every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode. to say hello. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Sarah Webb. Welcome to another week of Colorism Healing, live conversations on all things colorism. This week, the topic is collective healing. So I look forward to jumping into a discussion about what collective healing is, what does that look like, and how do we do it? How do we get it done? Before we jump in, be sure to say hello. Let me know where you're watching from. I always like to read off the locations of everyone who's joining live. And I also have a couple of announcements. Hey, how are you, Krissa? Crystal Habatala. I don't know if I said that right, hopefully. I think I might have been close. <laughs> hello, Reba, Reb Ashley. Um, Angola in Africa, awesome. Yeah, welcome, welcome. And the big announcement, I think, the first one I want to start off with is the fact that this is the last week. We're only days away from the ending of the International Colorism Healing Writing Contest. I don't know why it feels bittersweet. I don't know, because I've like enjoyed pumping it up and like getting people to submit over the past few months. But just even more exciting, though, is reading everybody's submissions. So it's a good thing that the submission period is closing because now we get to go into the reviewing of everybody's writing and the judges are ready to go. Um, and then once we select, you know, pieces, we get to share people's writing, you know, and share the results of the contest. So a lot to look forward to in the coming months. Uh, hello from NYC, Lisa Suma, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. What's up? Um, we have hi from Vienna. I am Shanda Rule. Shanda Rule. I watched your video. I don't know if I commented or not, but I was like, you have a lovely voice. So I'm glad you shared a link to see some of your live music. So anyone watching, I am Shanda Rule and the chat is a professional vocalist. <laughs> so definitely check out her page and hear her sing. Hello from Dallas. What's up, D-Town? Okay. Brooklyn, Indigo, and Flo. Yeah, I recognize you. I know you. <laughs> um, and I think I have some family in the DFW area. Like, not some family, like my immediate family. Like, my mom and my sister live in Mansfield, Texas. Um so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am Shandarul, of course. So, the other announcement, though. Hey, from the UK, life-changing therapy. Yes, we're all about changing lives here. <laughs> the other big announcement is that registration is now open for my summer group coaching program. This is the first cohort. So, I'm really looking forward to taking all of these ideas that I share with y'all from week to week that I've been writing about and implementing them in a group practice. And it's specifically for dark-skinned women. I do offer group coaching for um, people of all skin tones, people of different races and ethnicities at the individual level, right? So as individuals, if you want to work with me in terms of healing from colorism, unpacking your own privilege from colorism. I'm happy to talk to you more about that as well. But the group coaching that launches in the summer 
is for dark-skinned women specifically. Look at all these beautiful folks coming on, hopping on the live. I see some of y'all hop on and then y'all hop off, but that's cool. I'm glad you clicked on the little circle or I don't know what, it, what the notification looks like on Facebook. Thank you for joining. So let's get in. As you come in, you can also drop your name in the chat. Let us know where you're watching from. But if you are just tuning in, the topic for this week is collective healing. And what does that look like? Because a lot of times, and even for me, like a lot of the content I've created around healing does focus on the individual healing. And that is so important. We can't neglect that, right? The individual healing is the seed of the collective healing, right? And one of the reasons why I called my efforts colorism healing is because I know the, the, the rule that hurt people hurt people. And so part of the collective healing is your individual work. And so I want to acknowledge that before I get too deep into the idea of collective healing is that... Um, Depending on where you are in your own healing journey, you might have to spend a period of time of however long that is for you just focusing on your own healing, right? Because some of the things we're going to talk about today, um, you might have to put off until you've done some more of your individual inner work, right? And then you can be ready. You can have the strength and then you can build and cultivate the courage to spread some of that healing and love to the larger collective. And as always, I am open to taking questions, getting feedback. I know all of you always have beautiful insights or even stories and testimonies to share along the way. So the big idea is that colorism is a social phenomenon. And in my post from Sunday, I noted that we didn't get into colorism individually so we're not going to solve the problem individually right so we have to have collective effort we have to be thinking about collective solutions to colorism and this speaks directly to the pushback whenever we're talking about colorism you know how people say oh you just need to love yourself or you know if you weren't insecure you wouldn't be talking about colorism and i think those kinds of that kind of commentary is a direct reflection of this sort of individualistic thinking about colorism, thinking about colorism as just an individual personal problem. When I was growing up in school, whenever somebody had a bad day or whatever, or somebody complained about something, the, the fashionable thing to say or the cool thing was to say, well, that sounds like a personal problem. That sounds like a personal problem, right? <laughs> and so I want to dispel that notion that colorism is a personal problem, right? It affects us personally, but it is very much a social problem. It is very much a global social problem at that. And so to suggest that we just need to tell people to toughen up and pull themselves up by their bootstrap as a response to colorism is a fallacy, right? Um, and as I was saying before, Yes, those two things go hand in hand because for me, and one of the reasons why I am a proponent of collective healing is because I know what it's meant for me. So I'm going to give some transparency right now, right, as I'm talking to this group of wonderful people who have joined me live and anyone who watches the recordings or the saved videos and the playbacks is that when I started talking to y'all, when I started talking to people about colorism and about my experiences, 
I, I started healing in ways I didn't even know I was going to heal, right? And so I can speak to the need to take your healing to other people or participate in group endeavors to heal, not just as a, a theory or, you know, something I read in a research article, but it's also per very much personal experience. And the writing contest, for example, hey, Tanya, what's up? <laughs> Glad you're here. Um, from personal experience with the writing contest, that was really the first time I saw how colorism had global reach as an issue. Um, people, you know, were writing me and emailing me saying, hey, I live in this country. Can I submit to your contest? Hey, I live in this country. Can I submit to your contest? And hearing people who submit also say, you know, when I participated in this contest, I also realized it was global, right? And so you have all these people from around the world coming together to share their story about colorism and realizing like, yo, it's not just me, like somebody else who I thought would have had nothing in common with me also had a story to tell about colorism, right? And so, yes, it is a social problem that requires collective problem solving and collective efforts to undo and to redress, but also in the the cathartic expression of your testimony, the sharing of your testimony in a collective, that collective truth-telling. Again, the writing contest shows me that, but also just everything that you all do and say and share. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional, and it's, I'm, only, I'm not even 10 minutes into the live stream, <laughs> and I get emotional when I talk about my grand fam and my Facebook folks and the YouTube folks and all y'all. But... Yeah, so seeing how you all share in the comments or even share on the lives, um, that is, we are healing. Like, that is what part of what this collective healing looks like. Every time you tune in, every time you leave a comment, every time you um, follow another colorism account that I mentioned, right? That is part of that collective healing work. And so we are all like arm in arm doing this. And yes, it's a digital experience. It's a virtual experience, right? It's not the same as some of what I'm going to talk about later, but this is very much part of um, what that collective healing, right? And it kind of feels like a salve, right? Like a, like the Vicks Vapor Rub, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the collective truth telling when somebody else says, yes, me too. I went through that too. You know, it's almost like rubbing Vicks Vapor Rub on your chest a little bit, right? Like, ooh, that makes me feel a little bit better. That opens up my lungs a little bit. <laughs> um, Jandelle Crutch says, personal experience and written narratives are just as valid as research, particularly for folks whose voices aren't always included in the research. Come on, okay? Because you know the gatekeepers, child, that's a whole other conversation, but thank you for sharing that. Um, it's just ends. There is so much power in sharing. I absolutely believe that, right? The power of testimonies. Um, thank you, Tanya, for the heart. And so let me, I'm clicking on my notes here on the laptop. So the, I think one macro aspect of the collective healing piece is that it is a global issue. And more and more people are realizing that and recognizing that and understanding that now. Um, but I think we're still, a lot of people are still new to really understanding just how it's global, right? So even if we say or acknowledge, yes, colorism happens all over the world, what does that actually mean though? Like, what does that actually mean to say colorism is global, right? 
And so what I found and what, you know, again, the shared stories and the shared experiences reveal is that there are regional differences based on a particular ethnic group in a particular part of the world. Because even if you um, are of the same ethnicity, your experience of colorism will be different depending on what country you live in at the time, right? So there are so many nuances, so many, you know, com complexities to colorism based on, for example, if you live in a really diverse region of the country or you live in a really diverse region of the world right if your country is very diverse versus some countries are locations that are racially homogenous where they don't have a lot of diversity and so maybe you're the only person of color in your town or in your you know a certain mile radius and so all these different factors around the globe matter but i don't want people to overlook or forget the fact that there are broad patterns and broad consistencies and shared experiences despite the, the nuances. And I think that's where our power lies. I think that's the, the target for a lot of what collective healing could look like. Is saying, yes, my experience as a South Asian woman is not going to be the same as your experience as an African-American woman or your experience as um, an indigenous um, Latinx person, right? There are differences, but... There, the overall picture is that the more indigenous or the more black you look, um, the more marginalized you are in society. And the more European or Eurocentric you look, the more privileges are, the more your appearance is valued and respected in society, right? Um, and I think that is where solidarity comes in. And so leveraging solidarity, realizing that the color hierarchy is a global hierarchy. It's not just within the African-American community. It's not just within the United States. It's not just in Asian communities. It's not in these little, I imagine silos, like these big tubes are like islands, right? Like little islands where, oh, I don't know what's going on over there. And what happens over there doesn't affect me. We, we live in a global world now where we can't assume that just because something is happening thousands of miles away that it has no impact on us. And I think the current pandemic is a classic example, a tragic example, yes, but it's a classic example that we can't assume that just because there's a crisis or an issue or um, a problem or even like a, an invention or a revelation or progress in one area that we are not affected just because we don't have the same passport as those people being directly affected. Um, Lucidos, Lucidos says, yes, I'm so happy I made it. This is my first IG live ever. Hey, welcome. Yay. Everybody clap it up for Lucidos and their first ever IG live. I am so honored and so humbled. We all are that you would join us and make this your first one. And hopefully it won't be your last. I hope I do a good enough job to encourage you to attend more, not only of mine, but other people's live streams as well. Um, Tanya on Facebook is saying, God, we are so bad at complexity. Yeah. And I think you saying we're so bad at complexity is part of one of the tactics of domination. It's one of the tactics of the oppressors is to condition us to oversimplify the world, is to make us see the world in black and white, is to make us think that, oh, it's just it's just X or it's just Y. 
when really it's X, Y, Z, Z.5, A through X, 13, 14, you know what I mean? Um, and so in school curriculums and the media and the major news outlets, right, it's all um, part of, I think, oppressive systems is to say you are separate from these people or it's, it's simple. I think the, um, the perception or the belief that systems are simple is one of the ways that they are perpetuated. Because if you really understood what was going on, you would have a tool to dismantle that system. Understanding the system is the first tool to dismantling it, right? Um, yeah, more binary breaking, please. <laughs> Uh, yes, we live in a global world. I wish more in the U.S. would get this concept. Tanya Bagman on Facebook. I have to agree. Now, other people can chime in if you had a different experience. I do think the United States is particularly bad at not teaching people global perspectives, global thinking. Right? There's like a really strong aspect of nationalism in the United States that this like sort of U.S.-centric worldview that is perpetuated and, and um, promoted and rewarded in schools and in the media and in like the world in general. Because um, I think other people from other places in the world have a better sense even of just geography and like being able to know if you mention the name of a country, like what continent it's on. <laughs> right? Like even, um, let's see. We have someone from Angola here, right? But saying I'm from Angola in Africa. And I, I caught how like you were specific about um, clarifying where Angola was, right? Yeah, Crystal um, says Angola in Africa, right? So knowing, right, having experiences where, especially if you are living in the United States, like just not really knowing what the world, what's going on in the world. <laughs> Um, says very America first and only ideology. Yeah, Dev the Dragon. Yeah, it's and it's you really have to seek it out, seek out that information. Because if you're just going through standard channels of education, standard channels of media, you're just gonna get the US. Even if you like look at CNN Global or the BBC, um, it's not contextualized for you to understand how your life in the United States is connected to the news stories you're hearing about other places in the world. Um, and so I think in terms of leveraging solidarity, there also has to be an honest conversation. So I'm going to keep it real. <laughs> um, there has to be an honest conversation too about how all of us various people um, inflict harm towards each other, right? So part of that solidarity can't come at the expense of um, not acknowledging the relative privilege even amongst people who are aligning themselves together, right? So people of different ethnicities, people of different races from around the globe all coming together still have to acknowledge the ways that even us who are trying to fight against the oppression also participate in the oppression of other people. Right. And so you can't have solidarity without that honest conversation, that honest um, accountability for the ways that even oppressed people can also be oppressors. And I know um, amongst African-Americans specifically, that is a challenge because people will tell me and other folks like, 
we can't be talking about colorism because we're just all black and we just need to show a united front. And my answer is always, we can't show a united front if we don't address colorism. <laughs> so like, you want a united front, this is exactly the conversation we need to be having, right? Um, yeah, solidarity versus unity. <laughs> and I, I think we have to dispel that myth that unity is like uh, conforming. Right, you don't. I don't have to conform to you in order to be in unity with you or to be in solidarity with you. Like I can maintain my individual identity, my individual experience, and still support you on your journey. Still be stand in solidarity with you. And I know I posted this too, um, right around, right after the um, attack on the Asian American women, and I was saying how. We, I, we've experienced betrayal, not just from white folks, right? Not just from British folks, right? And yet we have to find a way to work through that because we're not going to get out of the system if, I if we were just to say, well, you hurt my feelings, so I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to pick up my toys and walk away, right? And that, that's kind of trivial, you know, it's more than just hurting my feelings, right? People have actually lost their lives, like people actually die as a result of these conflicts and these tensions between ethnic groups and racial groups. But my point in that post is that even black people have betrayed black people, right? And so, yes, there is betrayal, there is cross-cultural racism, there is cross-cultural ethnocentrism, there is xenophobia. Right. And all these other things that keep us separate. But we have to be willing to show up and work through those divisions, work through those tensions so that we can actually have solidarity. Right. Um, instead of saying, well, you know, I experienced a lot of racism from this particular ethnic group. And so I'm just going to write them off as a potential ally. And I know that's hard. That's hard. And that's why. At the beginning, I mentioned how sometimes we have to do some inner work before we can show up for the collective healing piece. A lot of times we have to um, process the betrayal. We have to process the traumas that we've experienced from each other in order to have the strength and the courage to show up despite the imperfections. Because I also want to say that none of us are perfect. No, no, none of our hands are clean. Nobody, nobody's hands are clean. And so if, if, if I demand perfection from you in order to support you or care for you or to listen to your story, um, that's, I think that's unrealistic. And it, it sabotages the potential progress we could make because I don't want someone to demand perfection from me, right? Like I wouldn't, like even in a romantic relationship, let's make it like real Put some tennis, put it in tennis shoes, right? If if your partner says, I can only love you if you're perfect, <laughs> then they can't love you, right? And so if, if we can only be in solidarity with people who are perfect, then we're not even gonna be in solidarity with ourselves, right? As an African American person, I can't even be in solidarity with other African Americans if if it's if they have to be perfect. So yes, there is division, there is tension, there's conflict, there's racism, there's colorism, like amongst all of us around the globe. There's a lot of anti-black racism. And I acknowledge that. But, you know, again, with the writing contest, I, I think about the, the people, a lot of them young women in particular, 
who reach out through that contest. And, um, you know, I was talking to a student, like a 16-year-old South Indian girl living in Sydney, Australia, a couple of weeks ago. And, like, she was pouring her heart out to me and just saying, like, I'm so glad I found your page. And it's those moments that reminds me that at the end of the day, we really are all human. And I promise you, I'm not saying that the way that um, people say it to dismiss conversations about racism. Because I know people use that line <laughs> to say, well, race, we shouldn't talk about racism because we're all human. And I'm like, that's not the reason to not talk about racism. Like, you're, you're right. We are all human, which is why we have to show up for each other and be honest, right? Um, but I found that I found so much power in being able to see that my story, my words, my work as an African-American woman could touch the life of someone of a different ethnicity living in a, on a completely different continent. And that's the piece I'm talking about, is that despite our racial and ethnic differences and our regional differences, I still touched her heart enough for her to like reach out to me and make a video asking to do an interview. And if that, if we lean into that, if we lean into the space where I see that part of you that is also a part of me, I see that. Um, because even with the, the colorblind idea, I, I know I'm kind of going even off my topic. When people talk about being colorblind, I don't see color, I don't see color. It's not the fact that we're different that is keeping us apart. It's not that you're a different color that makes it makes me unable to relate to you. It's my perception of what that color means. Um, and so it doesn't have to... Uh, we don't have to ignore differences in order to be connected. And we can um, see we can see similarities and connections despite our differences. Okay, let me read some of these comments because I just kept going on and on. I apologize. Um, Rev. Ashley, what are some good resources to access accurate and inclusive global news? That is a great question. I don't think I have a good answer on that for myself, but as people... So anyone watching, if you'd like to share your preferred resources for um, access to accurate and inclusive global news, please let Rev. Ashley know. I know for me, um, I don't rely on the major news sources. This is going to sound so millennial of me, but I just pay attention to like Twitter hashtags and like the Instagram folks I follow from around the world. Um, that's who I look to, right? So I'm not, I also don't have a TV, so I... I just do everything online anyway. But yeah, I look at my Twitter feed and I search for, you know, I see what the people I'm following are paying attention to because I follow people who I believe have their finger on the pulse of important issues that I already care about and who might help me understand and see things that I don't yet know about, right? So it's about curating for me in the, in the millennial age and the digital age. It's about have, using that platform, using that opportunity to curate the people I follow. They don't have to be major news outlets. They can just be people that you believe are like aware, who have that awareness. And and that's even one thing, Reb, actually, that's actually a good idea because look at, look at who you follow on Twitter. Look at who you're following on Instagram. Are they representative of the global community, right? Or do you only follow people from your country? Do you only follow people of your same ethnic background? And yes, do that, right? 
To all my dark skin folks, follow all the dark skin people you want because you need that affirmation. But also follow, you know, people from other countries who are also dark skin or, you know, of other skin tones. Um, so diversifying your, um, the pages and the people that you follow. Um, and I don't think it has to come from the BBC or CNN or ABC News or um, BuzzFeed, whoever the major players are these days. Um, but yeah, even diversifying, that's a simple way to start, right? In terms of increasing your global awareness um, about oppressive systems is to follow like actual global people, right? And that's, that, that's one of the reasons why I have y'all announce where you're located on these lives because I love the international fam. My grand fam especially is particularly international. My Facebook fam is too, but y'all are less vocal on Facebook, right? I think Tanya is the only one watching on Facebook. <laughs> Thank you for holding it down for Facebook, Tanya. Um, and Tanya says, and we're all in different places in our learning of these systems. Ooh, good point. We're all in different places in our learning of these systems, right? So being compassionate and patient with yourself as you learn. Um, and I, I even mentioned this in a job interview once. I said, I don't think it's helpful to judge people because they don't know as much as you know, right? And we get into this like game of being like, oh, well, how dare you not know everything I know, right? And it's like, mm, hold on, because at one time you didn't know everything you knew, right? So I think being careful of that as well and as we look to work with others. Um, diversify your feed, Okay, who's next? Um, Jendel Crutch says, unity equals you, the letter as well as Y-O-U, and I. Oh, I like that. Um, you and I, in other words, all of our differences in identity, skin color too, should have a space in the room, unity. I really like that. And I know I, I follow a lot of Brene Brown's work. And she talks about how if you have to... Um, conform in order to fit in, then you don't actually belong. I think I've said that before. But yeah, it's not really unity if I can't bring my whole self. I'm not, there ain't no unity here if I can't be me. If I have to shut up about my pain, then you're not in unity with me, okay? <laughs> um, this That's amazing. Rev Ashley says, 16-year-old me definitely needed this page. Right? Yes, my, me too, 16-year-old me too, definitely needed this page, and that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> um, okay, so let me keep going because I, I got stuck on that global piece. Um, the next piece uh, could, I might have to do a part two on this, to be honest, because this next piece is family, collective healing within family specifically. So I started off with that macro scale of global, right? And a lot of times what I post on Instagram, my Instagram stories are outlines, right? But you can always go deeper into each one of those, right? So the macro global collective healing, like solidarity, solidarity across cultures, across uh, countries. But what about within families? Right? How do we heal collective wounds that have happened in the smaller unit, the smaller community of a family? 
And this is an important piece too, and I wanna talk more about this at some point. I've talked about colorism in families, but specifically how we heal as families or how we heal within a family context is something that I think needs more conversation. And a lot of people, so many people, their initial wound of colorism came from their family, right? And so I think that conversation is so necessary for that reason. And when you're a kid, and I know we have a lot of social workers in this audience, um, when you're a kid, you are vulnerable. You're more vulnerable because you're relying on family to even just feed you, to literally stay alive. You are relying on your family. And so the, the level of agency and empowerment and choice is very limited, right? And so you are that much more vulnerable. And especially if, it ha if you experience colorism at very young ages where you're impressionable, where you're, um, by virtue of evolution and biology, you are like soaking in all of your, all of the feedback from your environment like a sponge, right? Um, I realized I missed some comments on Instagram, so let me pause. Colorblindness ideology exacerbates racial inequalities inequities. Rev. Ashley, well said, very concisely and well put. Um, ready, set, gold, goals, goals, says BBC. The BBC is a recommendation. Lucid Lose, I only follow DS female celebrities and influencers with the exception of Chloe Bailey. <laughs> you gotta have that one exception. Yeah, I only follow dark-skinned female celebrities and influencers. I don't even, I don't really know. I know I follow Viola Davis and Gabrielle Union and Lupita Nyong'o. And I don't know if I follow any other celebrities beyond that. Sometimes, I'll just say this, like, I can't follow everybody. Sometimes I'll get like a lot of followers at once and it's a lot to like go back and look at everybody's profile. But every now and then I'm like, oh, I'll just follow this person, you know, just because they are, you know, a ballet dancer. I'll just follow this person. Like, so <laughs> my following is kind of sporadic. Um, I'm not like not following people just to not follow them, but it's like, I'm, I'm, so I've surpassed 10,000 followers at this point, and so I can't go back and look at everybody's profile and like give a follow, but I appreciate all of you. I think um, following just the everyday folks is also like a really um, beneficial way to see diversity or to see the humanity in people who are different from you, right? Um, because sometimes the celebrity culture is so curated and is so like different from everyday life. Like the, the similarities in my life versus a Viola Davis might not be as similar as I think because of how much money she has, right? Um, I identify with her and relate to her in a lot of ways, but it's also nice to see like, you know, oh, um, here's somebody who might be a different skin tone or a different race, but they are also, you know, an educator who lives in a regular home. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of ways that social media can help us see um, the variety of people around us. I am Shanda Rule. I love this. As much as I honor the black female body I am in, I am looking forward to us stepping out of race theory and see our bodies as vessels. It'll happen. We used to think the world was flat too. Ooh, okay, you calling us out as human humans. That's why I always say, like, I hope people disagree with me. 
Because imagine if nobody disagreed that the world was flat. Y'all, like we need debate. We need, you know, conflict. We need tension. Because where would we be if everybody just accepted like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm just going to agree with you. <laughs> like, so the, the, the notion of unity as we all agree. No, we can be united and disagree, like wholeheartedly disagree and still be in unity. Disagreement is necessary for evolution and growth. Like, you know, heaven forbid, you know, in order to put up a united front, people never disagreed with each other. We wouldn't be talking on Instagram right now. Okay. Um, why do I keep doing that? Okay. Life-changing therapy. So sorry, I have to leave now. Thank you for doing this live. No problem. Thank you for joining. Sienna, I am. My first poem published through, through, through you, Mama, Can I Go Outside, talks about colorism in families. When our parents or siblings say, come inside before you get dark or darker. Amen. Amen. That is a classic. That is a classic. Um, Tanya says, conflict often means growth. Absolutely. Yes, conflict often means growth. I think that if you are not experiencing tension or conflict, there's no growth, right? You think about, um, I had a friend of mine use the butterfly analogy of how hard it is for a butterfly to break out of the cocoon, right? And it's like the struggle that the butterfly goes through to break out of the cocoon is what strengthens its wings enough to fly. And so if you cut a butterfly out of its cocoon, if you make it easy, if you make it easy for the butterfly to get out of the cocoon by just like freeing it, its wings will not be strong enough to fly. Okay, so we have to have conflict. We have to have tension. It is a part, a natural part of life. It's not comfortable. I ain't trying to say it's comfortable, but it's useful. It can be useful. Okay, with the right intentions. Um, Lucid Lowe says, yes, I agree with everything you say about colorism. I just don't believe in black allies. I'll say more about black allies if you if you care to share or expound on your thinking about black allies. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about, but just to make sure, drop a little bit of clarification in the comments. All right, um, so I'm going to end with families. I had, a, I had a third part with uh, the collective healing piece, but I can just bring it back to another live stream, I think. I think it'll just be me next week as well. I have another guest coming up on the 11th. So I think that first week in May, it'll just be me. So I might bring the last piece back on next week. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. I'm glad I asked you to clarify because that's not what I was thinking. Um, but Lucid Lowe says, correction, I don't believe non-Black people can be allies to Black people. Um, that's an interesting perspective. Say more. <laughs> I know. Type, keep typing, let us know, share, expound on your, your thinking there. And while you do that, I'll say a little bit more about colorism in families. And I, I think my advice to people in terms of dealing with colorism in families is different depending on how old they are, right? So a 13-year-old who's dealing with colorism within their family, my advice is different than someone who's 33 years old and dealing with colorism in their family, right? Especially if that 33-year-old person is independent, you know, is able to support themselves. Um, and then even, you know, if you have children, 
your relationship to your family. Like if you have colorist parents, for example, I got a question, you know, what do you do if your, if your own parents are colorist, right? And people dealing with having kids and then their moms saying colorist things about the kids or in front of the kids or treating their kids differently because one child is lighter skin and one child is darker skin, right? And so your family context is going to impact or influence the way you address colorism. And so the, the adult who can support themselves might take a different approach to addressing colorism in their family than the 12-year-old child who's, who has to remain at home, remain in that environment. Um, but a lot of what I recommend or what I'm seeing in terms of addressing colorism in families is about doing it for your own peace and your own healing, right? Like showing up to those conversations, having those conversations. So what I noted is Bringing up the conversations, establishing healthy boundaries, apologizing and forgiving. So, and actually you might want to establish the boundaries before you have the conversation. <laughs> um, look at the interview I did with Amber El Taib. I think that was one of the first um, interviews I did this year because uh, she talks about her approach and some strategies she uses when a approaching family members about di having difficult conversations. So I think there's a lot of insight there. Um, but I, and I think one of the things she says is to, before you even go enter the conversation with a family member, is to establish how far you're willing to go, right? So set up, ahead of time, set up what you're going to say if they shut down, right? Like, what are you going to do or say if they start becoming belligerent, right? And so you have to sort of strategize going into these conversations. Um, and that's, again, in the beginning when I said, most of us have to do a period of our own inner work before we can effectively show up for the collective work. Because you have to start to look within and you have to recognize your triggers. You have to do an assessment of your family on your own and process like, okay, this is the particular dynamic I have with my father. This is the particular dynamic I have with my mother, with my sister, with my um, aunts or uncles, right? So you have to do a lot of groundwork with yourself and for yourself before you can even show up to these family conversations in a way that's healthy and productive and constructive, right? especially for you. So it's, and it's also like, don't go to these situations. Don't go to these conversations expecting people to change, right? Don't expect people to see it the way you see it, right? I think, um, expect that you will show up, um, in your own integrity and in your own truth and offer the opportunity to have a conversation. I think that's the only thing you can really expect when dealing with colorism in families, right? Is that I expect that I am going to show up in my truth and integrity, open up the conversation, um, be courageous in the conversation, um, be open to receiving feedback about how I might have contributed to the problem, right? Um, but then I think you just have to leave it at that. I don't think you, if you're like getting your hopes up, like, yes, you know, now my dad is finally going to see everything my way. Like he might, you know, your mom might, your sister might come around and see things the way you do. But I don't think that's the real purpose of the conversations. Um, okay, let me read your comments because you all are brilliant and amazing. And I like to hear what you have to say. Um, 
Tanya Bagley says, do you always do lives at the same time on Tuesdays? Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, let's go back here. I saw a lot of things coming in. Um, Sangha, Kulu, Lucidlos, feel you there. I'm reading Afro-pessimism right now and I'm reevaluating allyship. Mm, Afro-pessimism is um, a theoretical framework that I am heard of, but I'm not familiar enough to really comment on. But I might pick up that book for my summer reading. <laughs> says, thank you for sharing your current read. It sounds interesting, and I definitely need to pick that up. Uh, Lucid Lose, I only believe in doing and knowing what's right wrong, slash wrong. If you want to help Black people educate your own community, no one needs a title for that. Oh, see? Lucid Lose. Thank you for providing that very lucid explanation. I don't know if that was <laughs> a effective play on words, but yeah, I think that's pretty clear what your what your stance is there. Um, I am Shanda Rule. This is interesting, Lucid Lose. I'm also having a hard time with this, especially co-creating spaces of healing where they can be healthy. There can be healthy tension and growth. Um, Lucid Lowe says, I am Shonda Rule. Exactly. Black people cannot deal with heal when everyone keeps coming in to derail the conversation and our progress. That part, right? So I think the, there, there's a definite like rhetoric. There's a strain of rhetoric that I've heard too, where it's like, Black people aren't the only ones who suffer, right? And there, a lot of times there's this um, jealousy almost, this kind of competition, right? Where like other non-Black folks see um, news stories about Black life, Black Lives Matter, and they feel anger or resentment that a Black story is getting attention when they feel like their stories don't often get attention. Um, and I think that's part of what I'm talking about in terms of needing to address all the ways that we do that to each other, right? All of the infighting, even amongst people of color. And <laughs> I think Black, you know, Afro-pessimism might say that that's, you know, just the way it's going to be. Um, allies like telling us what to do and how we can make them comfortable as we fight for liberation. Yeah, I can see that. Aw, I feel y'all. Hmm. <laughs> like, I feel the disappointment with other non-Black folks. Like, I feel that right now. Um, let's see. So Lucid Lose, your comment saying, I only believe in doing and knowing what's right, r slash wrong. If you want to help black people educate your own community, no one needs a title for that. And I, I think, so I'm wondering, and I'm, I'm posing this as a question too, right? So I agree that you don't need a title, right? Like just do it. And it's like, 
people use that title, the, the word ally. Oh, I'm an ally. I'm an allyship as sort of a pat on the back, right? And it can be seen as or used as a way to make, to, to ease your guilt or appease your own guilt, right? Or to say like, I'm one of the good ones because I'm an ally. Um, and even like when white people call themselves allies, right? I also don't think if we use the term, I don't think white people should be the ones designating who is an ally, right? I know that argument exists, right? Like if someone else affirms that you were an ally to them in that moment, then that's their perspective. But to just claim that title for yourself as a white person is can be suspect at times. But then like my other question though is if you're if you're thinking about it in terms of a strategy or a tactic or a technique, right? Um, is it helpful? Is it helpful to have or to identify specific roles in that strategy, right? And so that's like an honest question. I'm curious to know what people think about that. Um, Tanya Bagley, yes, I don't, don't self-claim that ally title. Yeah, <laughs> don't self-claim it. Because um, I'm also thinking about, so I, I'm going to come back next week and finish, you know, the other piece of what I was going to talk about today, because this conversation that Lucid Lose has, has brought up, I think, is fascinating and very productive and worth unpacking and thinking about. Um, because, like, when you're thinking about doing what's right and wrong, I think, I think that can be taken, like, a little bit passive, Right. And so I think being proactive, being actively trying to dismantle a system or actively trying to create equity and justice, um, like is a step beyond like doing what's right and wrong, if that makes sense. Like, I think it's a little bit more strategic than just being morally right or wrong. I don't know, but maybe I'm overcomplicating it. <laughs> um, Reb Ashley says allyship feels performative. Yeah. And I, I just I distinguish between performative allyship versus genuine allyship. And I know a lot of people on here too talk about the word accomplice. They say, I don't want an ally, I want an accomplice. And so maybe that's like part of what I'm saying too is like an accomplice in terms of like we're doing this on purpose. Like this is not just I woke up one day and decided to be nice to someone. This is like, no, I've spent days, weeks, years, hours like actually plotting to subvert this system, like actually plotting to, you know, see how I can turn this institution inside out, right? Which I think is different than just the, oh, you know, if I, if I happen to see a black person being stopped by the cops, then I'm going to like use my voice and like videotape them and say, hey, why are you arresting them? Like that's like a, a haphazard thing. Like I just happen to be in that place at that time versus like I'm at the drawing table seeing how I can leverage my privilege, you know, as the owner of this company or as like the top manager in this country. How can I leverage my privilege in whatever, however that is and like actually like have a plan, like a step-by-step -step strategy. Like this is precisely what I'm going to do in this amount of time with this amount of resources and, you know, people. I don't know. Let me see what y'all saying. Uh, I am Shanda Rule. What about colorism allies? Is it more nuanced? 
This is what we're asking for in a way. Mm. <laughs> Colorism allies. You can check out, I did a live with my sister who's light-skinned um, and we talked about allyship and her role as, a, as the lighter-skinned sister and how she shows up to this conversation and for this effort to dismantle colorism. Let me keep going though. It also feels like ally is used as a shield from reproach, as if there's, a, there's this or that dichotomy. You can be an ally in a specific moment of time and a racist or colorist or homophobic in the next. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling that, Reb Ashley. Lucid Low says, oh, I want an accomplice too. That sounds like a better fit to me. <laughs> yeah, um, I first heard that on here from Dewan Owens. Um, so you can follow him, maybe. I can bring him back on one of these days. I've, I've done some lives with him too, so if you are curious to check that out, I follow his page, um, Dewan Owens. Jindel Crutch says, right. Oh, okay. I got through all the comments. <laughs> um, Tanya says, self-reflection is so important. Many, many folks have never done any reflection on their own identity. I go back to Sonia Renee Taylor's work for this. Ooh, Sonia Renee Taylor. Yes. Um, all right, folks. I think I'm going to end it there. <laughs> yeah. Dewan got a cosign um, <laughs> in the comments in the chat. Um, all right. So I'm going to come back and finish the other things and ideas I didn't get to um, on this live. But I think the, the where the conversation went in terms of the question of allyship is a good one. Um, and I, but I also encourage us to keep thinking, though, right? To keep thinking. Um, about how, because I said this on the Black Knowledge, the Black Knowledge Society, right? Who I also introduced to Dewan, Dewan. <laughs> um, how you know our ancestors could not imagine the world as it is today, um, and even thinking, you know, again, I don't know much about Afro pessimism, but like our human ancestors as well as our Black ancestors specifically would not have imagined the world as it is today. And so I encourage all of us to realize that just because we can't imagine the world being different doesn't mean it won't or can't be different. Um, so I'll end on that note. I used to leave with affirmations. Now I have to go back to ending with affirmations. Um, I am Shonda Rule says, a great question. I believe non-Black people can be allies when it comes to colorism. Ooh, we got to pick up on that. We got to pick up on this ally conversation. Let's, let's come back to that. Somebody remind me to revisit this conversation. Lucid Los, we might have to bring you on live, right? Like, are you down for a live? You know, let me know. Let us know in the chat. And that way, you know, we can all be like, yeah, you know, let's do this live convo with um, Lucid Los. <laughs> on the question of why, you know, people can't be allies. Um, Tanya Baggins says, always another faith saying, stay curious. Stay curious, um, stay curious, yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm, I, I pray that everything I know today is not everything I know tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? Like, my hope is that everything I know today is not everything I know 10 years from now. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. And I, I hope that for humanity too, right? <laughs> All right, y'all. Love y'all so much. Thank you. Your time, your attention, your feedback, your thoughts, 
your commentary, your questions, all of it is so valuable, so valuable. And uh, I'll be back next week and let's continue the conversation. Take care. Mwah. Mwah. Thanks again for listening. Please remember to hit the like button and share this episode with a friend. I hope you can join us again for the next one.